Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim. Welcome to the Future Leaders Communique podcast. I'd also like to welcome to this episode, Dr. Brendan Morrissey, who's the lead editor of this edition and supports the junior medical guest editors with completion of each of these hard copy and podcast. Brendan, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll talk a little bit about this podcast. Hi, Joke. Um, I'm an emergency physician uh, based in Melbourne. I'm also the supervisor of intern training uh, for the hospital in which I work. I have a keen interest in medical education and junior medical staff support. Thank you. So I see in this podcast, we'll obviously have the guest editorial. We'll go through the case, which is called One Language is Never Enough, and that we've got two expert commentaries and some comments from the junior doctor's peers. What do you find most challenging about supporting junior doctors in formulating these communiques? I find honing in on this specific topics. These coroner's reports give a plethora of issues for each case of the raise. There are so many uh, areas where we could look on and reflect and attempt to improve uh, given benefit of, of hindsight with these cases and focusing on just a handful of issues that resonate with the junior medical staff. Having an application of universality uh, to, our, to our audience is always, the, I think, the most important part of the editorial process for this. The next section we'll listen to is the guest editorial by Dr. Sarah Malenko. Sarah is a second year basic physician trainee and is currently working as a general medicine registrar. Brendan, with your interactions with Sarah, what did you find was her passion and why did she take on this subject of culturally and linguistically diverse populations, do you think? She, as you say, clearly had a, a passion for this topic, but also an experience and expertise within it. She wrote a huge number of references and research documents to inform and direct her editorial and her direction she took in the uh, case summary, and also reached out to some experts in this area to really add a great deal of insight and experience to the expert commentaries. Let's now listen to the guest editorial and one of the things to focus on is 
Sarah's provided a list with ideas about how to improve culturally and linguistically diverse care at an organisational level. First up is the guest editorial from Dr. Sarah Malenko. Welcome to this podcast based on the July 2020 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. The focus of this edition is how healthcare professionals can provide better care for individuals of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. The case presented in this edition of Mr. A.D., a 71-year-old man who did not speak English, is a sobering example of patient harm due to communication failures. Mr. A.D. underwent a hemicolectomy of which neither he nor his family fully understood the risks and benefits. He died as a result of an anastomotic leak. The hemicolectomy was in retrospect deemed unnecessary. There are two expert commentaries in this edition. Dr. Chris Limo is a consultant physician practicing in the areas of general internal medicine and infectious diseases. He has a specific interest in cross-cultural health research and marginalized populations such as culturally and linguistically diverse communities. The second commentary is co-authored by Associate Professor Robin Woodward-Cron and Professor David Storey. Associate Professor Robin Woodward-Cron is an academic who has extensively researched patient education, health literacy, interactions of culturally diverse populations within the healthcare system, and healthcare communication. Professor David Storey is an anaesthetist and researcher who has published extensively on the perioperative care of high-risk patients. Australia has a diverse and multicultural population. Over one-third of Australians were born overseas and more than 27% speak a language other than English at home. The term culturally and linguistically diverse has replaced non-English speaking background as it encompasses cultural as well as linguistic differences. Culturally and linguistically diverse describes individuals who have diverse languages, ethnic backgrounds, nationalities, religions, health beliefs, social structures and customs. Individuals of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds experience poorer health outcomes as a result of the many barriers they face. Barriers may exist in their health and illness belief systems, English proficiency, health literacy, services available, knowledge of services available, cultural safety within services, fear of authorities, as well as practical barriers and fear of how they will be perceived by their community. Due to the diversity of barriers, solutions ideally should be developed after consultation with a respective culturally and linguistically diverse community and extensive research of the community's needs. At an organisational level, there are a number of possible strategies which could improve the healthcare experience for individuals from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Consider these ideas. 1. Equal employment opportunities, particularly of local, culturally and linguistically diverse individuals who understand the needs of their communities. 2. 
provision of informational material which is concise, visual, plain language, and is translated as well as in English. Three, adequate research, promotion, and resourcing of the service. Four, consideration of practical barriers such as signage, opening times, and physical location. Five, cultural competence training for staff. And six, partnering with culturally and linguistically diverse organizations for support, language services, cultural awareness training, and advice. From the perspective of an individual healthcare professional, culture is not static, and there can be a high degree of difference within cultures. As there are more than 200 living cultures within Australia, the patient is likely to be the best person to consult in regards to where they fit in relation to their culture. Culturally safe practice could also involve self-reflection, recognising biases, and understanding a person in the context of their experiences. While it is often difficult to access interpreters, we should make extra effort in situations which are complex and or high risk. A person from a culturally and linguistically diverse background may be able to understand most of what is said in a medical consultation because their English is at a high conversational level. However, it is possible that their health literacy is not at the same standard, and this may also be true of relatives who offer to interpret for patients. For these reasons, it is optimal practice to always have an interpreter present for the patient's first language. There were many factors which aligned in the case of Mr. AD to cause the final devastating outcome. While the majority of factors were outside the control of any single person or organisation, communication and the use of interpreters are influenceable at an individual level. We hope that this edition provides some guidance when you next see an individual of a culturally and linguistically diverse background. The next section goes through the details of the coroner's case. Brendan, I always find it difficult to summarise the coroner's case and Sarah's done a good job here and the title of the case is One Language is Never Enough. What did you think are the pertinent one or two issues that we would want our junior colleagues to pay particular attention to? I think a couple of the key points from this case were the interactions and communications of uh, Mr. A.D., the patient uh, in question, in their understanding of the elective procedure, elective surgery they were consented for, and also on discharge from hospital following the procedure, their understanding of their follow-up and the reasons they may want to return or seek GP or emergent care uh, if they had concerns. That through the spectrum of a patient from a culturally or linguistically diverse background, I think are key points for junior medical staff to reflect on. Thank you. Let's now listen to the case titled One Language is Never Enough. The case title is One Language is Never Enough. Case number D0055-2017, NT. Case Precy author is Dr. Sarah Milenko. Clinical summary. Mr. A.D., 
was a 71-year-old man born in Indonesia who immigrated to Darwin when he was 26 years old. His past medical history included hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Mr. AD was referred to a tertiary public metropolitan hospital by his general practitioner for further management of a positive routine faecal occult blood test. Mr. AD had two colonoscopies which showed there might be an ileocecal valve mass. Biopsies of the mass during colonoscopy on two separate occasions four months apart were benign. He also had a CT scan which did not show a sequel mass. A few months later, Mr. AD and his wife attended an outpatient appointment with a senior surgical registrar. Mr. AD and his wife could understand and speak basic English, but it was not their first language and there was no interpreter present. Mr. AD was given three options for management of the ileocecal valve mass. One, monitoring with colonoscopies. Two, endoscopic mucosal resection, which they would not be able to perform at that hospital. And three, laparoscopic right hemicolectomy. Mr. AD was unsure which option was best and asked for the doctor's recommendation. The registrar, after speaking with their consultant, said the best option was the laparoscopic right hemicolectomy, to which Mr. AD consented. The laparoscopic right hemicolectomy was uncomplicated. The ileocecal valve had no malignancy and there were no polyp or tumour identified. Mr. AD remained in hospital for nine days. He spent 48 hours in the intensive care unit for a possible anastomotic leak. After transfer back to the ward, the surgical team's plans were for Mr. AD to sit out of bed and mobilise. The nursing staff attempted to mobilise Mr. AD to the toilet, although his family thought he was still too weak, and he had an episode of faecal incontinence. Mr. AD's family became angry at the embarrassment and perceived a lack of dignity. At discharge, neither Mr. AD nor his family were given information about possible further complications. Mr. AD's family were unhappy about the lack of information, so they contacted the outpatient clinic, who then contacted a community care nurse who reviewed Mr. AD at home two days after discharge. The wound was weeping, but there were no other concerns. The following day, Mr. AD developed significant abdominal pain which progressively worsened over the next four days. A planned review at home by the community care nurse took place on the fourth day. The nurse noted Mr. AD's wound was gaping and exuding pus and so called the ambulance. On readmission to hospital, Mr. AD was septic and peritonitic. He underwent an emergency laparotomy which found an anastomotic leak and feculent peritonitis. Following the laparotomy, he was transferred to intensive care unit where he continued to deteriorate, developing multi-organ failure secondary to sepsis. A second laparotomy was performed which excluded ischemic bowel. Five days after his readmission to hospital, 
Mr. AD was on maximal supportive therapy, but his blood pressure continued to fall and his lactate continued to rise. With the agreement of Mr. AD's family, organ support was withdrawn and Mr. AD died. Pathology. The cause of death was concluded to be multi-organ failure due to septic shock that was secondary to faecal peritonitis due to an anastomotic leak. Investigation. The death was reported to the coroner by the hospital. This case proceeded to inquest as the coroner was concerned the hospital did not perform a review of its processes despite evident concerns surrounding Mr. AD's death. The coroner raised the following four issues. 1. Whether the surgery should have been conducted. The coroner obtained two expert reports regarding the appropriateness of the surgery. The first expert a professor of hepatopancreaticobiliary surgery and consultant surgeon, stated that proceeding to surgery was reasonable. He stated the patient had a suspicious lesion, as demonstrated by the positive IFOBT and two colonoscopies, so proceeding with surgery seemed reasonable as endoscopic intervention would not have given further information nor treated the lesion. The second expert, a consultant colorectal surgeon, stated there was insufficient evidence to proceed with surgery given the pictures taken at colonoscopy did not indicate a tumour or polyp, and multiple biopsies and a CT scan were normal. He stated the IFOBT's high false positive rates of at least 50% means it does not directly correlate with suspicious colon pathology. He noted on second colonoscopy, the macroscopic appearance was likened to a serrated adenoma. However, this cannot be determined by visual inspection. He also expected some evidence of the lesion on CT or evidence of progression at colonoscopy if a neoplasm had been present for six months. He felt it was highly likely that surgery would not have been recommended if Mr. AD's pathology was reviewed in a multidisciplinary meeting. He would have managed Mr. AD with colonic surveillance. 2. Whether sufficient understanding of the options was given to Mr. AD such that he could make a reasoned decision and thereby provide informed consent. Neither Mr. AD nor Mr. AD's family understood that he was having a large part of his colon removed. They thought it was a minor surgical procedure. Mr. AD and his wife were not told that a laparoscopic hemicolectomy carried a risk of death more significant than the other options presented. No interpreter was present when the consent form was completed, despite Mr. AD and his wife's limited English proficiency. In addition, on the consent form, none of the boxes to signify patient understanding were ticked. 3. Communication with the family The coroner stated there was no evidence of any meaningful communication by the surgical team with the family during the first admission. However, communication with the family during the second admission was adequate. 4. 
discharge process. The coroner stated that the failure to communicate properly with the family on the day of discharge is likely the most proximate omission having a direct connection with the death of Mr. A.D. Mr. A.D. and his family were likely reluctant to return to hospital. However, they were not explicitly told to return if complications arose, and Mr. A.D. may have survived if he had returned sooner. In conclusion, the coroner found that Mr. A.D. died after having unnecessary elective surgery, which likely would not have been recommended if Mr. A.D.'s case had been discussed in a multidisciplinary meeting. Mr. A.D. was given insufficient information to decide whether to proceed to surgery and relied on the recommendation of the surgeon. Finally, Mr. A.D. did not return to hospital after developing the anastomotic leak due to the lack of information provided on discharge. Coroner's Findings The coroner made multiple recommendations for the health service, including 1. Ensure an appropriate assessment is undertaken of the needs of patients and their support persons for interpreter services prior to the provision of options for treatment and warnings as to risk of procedures. 2. Ensure the patients are properly informed of the risks of procedures and that documentation relating to those communications and consent is properly completed and regularly audited to ensure compliance. 3. Ensure that appropriate communication is had with patients and supporting family members when discharged. That communication should at a minimum include a written discharge summary. 4. Ensure objective reviews of all deaths arising in the context of elective surgery are undertaken. That such reviews consider and record reasonably appropriate recommendations for ongoing improvement. Author's Comments This case highlights how vulnerable individuals are at a greater risk of devastating outcomes through a lack of tailored communication to assist their understanding of pertinent health information. When surgery was offered to Mr. AD, use of an interpreter would have been optimal practice, especially given Mr. AD's limited English proficiency. Another lesson to be taken from this case is the importance of communicating possible features of life-threatening complications which can occur after discharge to the patient and their family. This next segment is one of the expert commentaries by Dr Chris Limo, titled Lost for Words. Brendan, what were your thoughts around this commentary? And again, what what are the, the highlights that you think that we should pay particular attention to or what caught you by surprise? I think a quote Dr Lemo used during this expert commentary from W.H. Auden, every dialogue is a feature translation, is an excellent entry point to this commentary, focusing on the layers of communication required to interact effectively and pass information back and forth from the clinician to the patient so they have a shared understanding and there is a support of their decision making in cases like this. Let's now listen to the commentary, Lost for Words, by Dr. Chris Lima. Expert commentary, Lost for Words, by Dr. Chris Lemo, Senior Staff Specialist at Monash Health, 
general medicine at Dandenong Hospital. This case illustrates the tragic consequences of communication failure. Mr. AD died due to delayed diagnosis of a recognised complication following a procedure that may have been unnecessary. His caring family was unable to support him in deciding whether to go ahead with the procedure or returning promptly to the hospital once he became unwell. He and his family were reduced to the position of passive consumers rather than active partners in the care of his health. This made his care unsafe, caused emotional distress to his family and may make them less ready to trust the health service in the future. What went wrong? Every dialogue is a feat of translation, wrote W.H. Auden. Mr. A.D. and his wife were not fluent in English and did not have access to an interpreter when discussing options for management of his possible intestinal lesion. Multidisciplinary team meetings highlight how discussions about various risks and benefits of several hypothetical courses of action present great challenges even when conducted between clinicians sharing common language and technical knowledge. The challenges multiply when additional layers of complexity are present. Differences in education and health literacy, language or culture. These complexities do not disappear when an interpreter is present. They become more visible, presenting an opportunity to talk through issues, find words and create a common understanding as a basis for decisions. Australia has never been an Anglophone monoculture. Clinicians must acknowledge the linguistic and cultural diversity of our patients and offer language services support when needed. We must also become competent at adjusting our speech to enable effective communication, especially when patients have limited English fluency. Patients and clinicians alike tend to overestimate patient fluency in English and underestimate the contribution of a trained interpreter to a clinical conversation. Many people have sufficient fluency to get by in daily transactional English conversations. However, discussion of complex timelines, emotions, and hypothetical scenarios requires much greater fluency, a more extensive vocabulary, and sophisticated understanding of grammar, only achieved with education and relevant practice. Trained interpreters can contribute greatly to the quality of clinical conversations, even between clinicians and patients from non-Anglophone backgrounds who have lived in Australia for many years. Without a trained interpreter, many concerns are simply lost in silence, only to resurface later when things go wrong. Safe communication goes well beyond giving and receiving information about symptoms investigations, diagnoses, and management. Human health and illness is irreducibly complex. Each patient enters the therapeutic relationship as a unique constellation of physical and psychological attributes, embedded in a network of social relationships in a particular setting. Moreover, each patient typically establishes therapeutic relationships with several health professionals in a team, 
all of whom are embedded in networks of professional relationships within that team and with others. On the one hand, the clinician must establish a relationship with the patient as a person, working collaboratively with the patient and family to manage the uncertainty emerging from addressing illness in the social context. On the other, the clinician must also manage effective communication with colleagues throughout the patient journey. Given the complexity of the therapeutic encounter, it is difficult to accurately predict progress and anticipate problems for any individual patient. Large-scale research can produce useful information to quantify the probability of complications or success of a surgical procedure, but cannot reliably predict when or if a particular patient will experience a specific complication. Protocols and guidelines help us get it right most of the time, but a good protocol alerts the clinician to the occasion when it is necessary to stop, observe, reflect, and create a solution. High quality, open, two-way communication is the most effective, versatile, flexible means we possess to create dynamic solutions to complex challenges. Every medication has its potential toxicities. Every procedure has its potential complications. As clinicians, we try to minimise these risks through training, teamwork and following established evidence-based procedures. We expect to be supported by our workplaces to have access to material resources, guidelines and other information that will help us practise consistently and safely. However, just as medications are only effective when actually taken, guidelines, protocols and forms are only useful when actually used. We must prepare ourselves with sufficient training and knowledge of available resources, but more importantly, the moral perspective and self-discipline to approach each clinical interaction with respect, sensitivity, and a sense of accountability toward the patient and family. We must also remember the importance of self-care Tired, emotionally burnt-out clinicians find it hard to be reflective and creative. There never seems to be enough time, and there are always too many patients. It is easy to become desensitised, rushed and superficial. It is hard to find time to reflect and engage with the complexities of individual patients. It sometimes seems much easier to follow a routine, do a perfunctory job, and get most of it right most of the time. But there is no such thing as a routine case if you are the case in question. Moving on now, Brendan, we come to the second expert commentary. This one's titled Intercultural Communication and Safe, Effective Healthcare for All. We have two contributors to this commentary by Associate Professor Robin Woodward-Cron and Professor David Storey. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this second expert commentary and what do you think of the take-home messages for our listeners? I think this follows on perfectly from the issue up to this point, uh, really hones in on practical things on an individual or institutional level uh, that can be done to improve communication with patients from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. 
Um, let's now listen to that second expert commentary titled Intercultural Communication and Safe, Effective Healthcare for All. Expert commentary, intercultural communication and safe, effective healthcare for all. From Associate Professor Robin Woodward-Cron, Director, Research and Research Training at the Melbourne Medical School, University of Melbourne, and Professor David Storey, Founding Chair of Anesthesia at the University of Melbourne, Austin Health. The coroner's report into the death of Mr. A.D., a 71-year-old man, highlights a major challenge for patients, carers, and healthcare providers in our multicultural society. The coroner found a potential barrier affecting Mr. A.D.'s level of understanding about his surgery was that he and his wife only had a limited understanding of English. This language barrier between the patient and the healthcare team and the subsequent limited understanding between them may have adversely affected communication and decision-making, possibly contributing to Mr. A.D.'s death following surgery. There was insufficient information provided to Mr. A.D. about the risks associated with surgery. No interpreter was made available to assist with the discussion of risk and at discharge, the patient and family received little to no information about post-operative care and what to expect. Further, there may have been cultural factors at play that hindered more open communication between the patient and family and the healthcare team. In Australian hospital and community practice, clinicians frequently encounter patients from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. In some instances, low English language proficiency can be the most salient barrier, but differing cultural values, beliefs and practices, as well as health beliefs and low health literacy may also contribute to misunderstandings and miscommunication. The term intercultural communication acknowledges that both language proficiency as well as cultural factors can negatively impact interactions when there are speakers from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. The consequences for this lack of alignment or when support to facilitate communication is lacking can be catastrophic for the patient and family, as well as impact the treating team professionally and emotionally. Communication as a barrier for culturally and linguistically diverse patients was recently recognised by the Victorian Consultative Council on Anesthesia Mortality and Morbidity, or VCCAMM. The council recommended that Safer Care Victoria explore existing and new opportunities with health services to develop practical point-of-care tools to facilitate greater communication between patients from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and their healthcare providers. VCCAMM emphasised the need to develop appropriate materials, written and all electronic, for culturally and linguistically diverse patients both before and after surgery. In related work, 
We have a research program exploring communication tools to overcome language and culture as a barrier to culturally and linguistically diverse patients participating in clinical trials. At Western Health Victoria, innovative work using iPads and translations of commonly occurring phrases in the allied health and nursing setting show promise in facilitating more effective communication between patients and the healthcare team when interpreters are not available. Such tools could also be adapted for discharge discussions. In an ideal world, clinicians caring for culturally and linguistically diverse patients would always be able to collaborate with highly skilled professional interpreters who have insight into both Australian clinical care and the language and culture of patients from different culturally and linguistically diverse groups. Those who have worked with professional interpreters will realize that this collaboration is a direct conversation with the patient and often their families, facilitated but not filtered by interpreter colleagues. However, clinicians must allow for the added time taken to work with interpreters. Unfortunately, this ideal practice situation is often not possible, particularly so for emergency care. So, what are the options? The first is using telephone interpreters, but many clinicians and patients find this unsatisfactory due to the lack of face-to-face -face interaction. Another option is electronic translating approaches such as Google Translator. However, caution is needed as research suggests that it is unwise to attempt to use this kind of technology to translate complex ideas. Another option is to seek hospital staff, ideally clinical staff, from the same culturally and linguistically diverse group as the patient. In many clinical situations for older, culturally and linguistically diverse people, family act as interpreters. Family having an added role in the conversation as interpreter has advantages and disadvantages. The major advantage is that the family know what was said. The disadvantages include the likely difficulty of accurately interpreting technical or complex issues, the family interpreter filtering the discussion, and considerable ethical concerns about patient autonomy and privacy. To facilitate communication across an episode of care, such as the surgical patient's journey from pre-operative assessment to post-operative return home, one approach used in many intensive care units is to have a family spokesperson. It is important for culturally and linguistically diverse patients that the primary contact person has a good relationship with the patient and other family members, as well as with the clinical team. Literacy, health literacy and culture can also be a barrier to effective communication. Limited numeracy can undermine understanding of discussions about risks of procedures such as 5% risk of 30-day mortality after surgery. Some cultures place great importance in showing respect and having entrenched social hierarchies. People from these cultures may feel uncomfortable asking questions, 
particularly questions that may challenge information provided by clinicians since doctor knows best. While all clinician interactions should be individualised to the patient and carers, a fundamental component is to convey what patients and carers must know, particularly indicators of deterioration, and to ensure as far as possible that the recipients of the information have understood the key information. All clinical discussions, and especially those requiring a decision, should include the question, do you have questions or concerns? Junior doctors, as future leaders in healthcare, can advocate for culturally and linguistically diverse patients in their interactions with the healthcare team, raising awareness of these patients' language and cultural needs and perspectives. Informing and lobbying hospital administration about point-of-care communication tools, such as those recommended by Victorian Consultative Council on Anaesthetic Mortality and Morbidity, is another area where junior doctors can show advocacy. Such activities can contribute to addressing healthcare disparities and preventing catastrophic communication breakdowns, such as those experienced by Mr AD and his family. The next segment is comments from our peers. This is my favourite part of the edition and is one of the major points of difference between the three communiques we produce. We ask the other junior doctors to read the edition and to come up with their thoughts. And this often gives me new insights, things that I've forgotten, things that I've never thought about. Brendan, were there any of the comments here that particularly struck home for you? There were comments such as the importance of ensuring information is not only given but also understood. I think just underscores the entire theme of effective communication and how important it is to reflect what we are saying and what we are trying to communicate to our patients is what they are understanding of the next steps. Also the reflection on the number of missed opportunities through the case to improve upon the interactions with the patient and, the, and their family in ensuring their safe care made me reflect back myself on the case and my own practice. Thank you. Let's now listen to the final segment, which is comments from our peers. Comments from our peers. The statistic that one third of our population were born overseas says it all. We are very commonly caring for patients of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Yet if I were to audit my own team, I'm certain there'd be a glaring number of occasions where we just got by without an interpreter. Was this because of a perceived time restraint? Possibly. Was it due to a lack of conveniently available trained interpreters? Probably. Was the patient ever left with any uncertainty? Almost definitely. It is so important to ensure information is not only given, but also understood, particularly at key points in care, like admission, consent for a procedure, and on discharge. What particularly interests me in this case is how many missed opportunities stemmed from poor English proficiency and how the complications only compounded and ultimately contributed to the patient's mortality. Particularly in a COVID-19 time where family visiting and in-person translation services have been limited, the importance of arranging a phone interpreter has been significant. 
I have personally had a recent experience where my vocabulary was limited on explaining complex imaging and pathology results to a patient and had to apologise and return later when a phone interpreter was available to complete the explanation. Providing patient information and instructions in their primary language can significantly improve their level of autonomy, understanding and clinical outcomes. Knowing where to access these resources is important for all clinicians. Communication is a two-way process, giving and receiving information. The giver must ensure that the receiver understands what is being conveyed or the process of communication is not complete. Linguistic diversity should not be a barrier to this process. This concludes our podcast. A thanks to Brendan Morrissey, who is our lead editor for the Future Leaders Communique and guides our junior faculty through the completion. Thanks very much for your time, Brendan. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? I'd just like to offer my thanks to Sarah and our expert commentators on the fantastic job they've done in bringing this issue together. So thank you to all our listeners and we hope to be with you again soon.